2 Samuel chapter 24. Now, remember how this, all, this mess started for 2 Samuel 24. We're getting to the end of this books of Samuel together. Uh, we were wrapping it up, and I, I just challenged you a few weeks, several weeks ago now. Um, I, I want you to study this chapter with me. We're going to look at all the weird things in this chapter because there's lots of it in here. But what I wanted you to do was grapple with it for the purpose of if you were to teach or preach, whatever, if you were to teach from this chapter, what would you say and what would you do? I, I really want it to be kind of like an insightful thing about what preaching's about because here's, you look at this chapter and there's all sorts of interesting things that plague the mind and yet what you have to do when you teach is you have to interpret it and then you have to apply it and if you're not ready to apply it you haven't taught it that's great to have interesting insights on these weird verses but if you're not ready to apply it to a life then you're not ready to teach it and that's i just wanted everybody to kind of participate and some did some didn't that's okay but before we leave this i i have one one more um one more interesting uh, uh, study on God from this chapter about how he works in our lives, the complexity. Too many people have what would be a simplistic view of God. God is love, and that's all he is, or God is, uh, God is good, and that's all he is. This chapter proves that God's much, much more complex than that. He's also just. He loves you, but he's interested in, to grow, in growing you. And he will do things that will grow you, even though you would swear for him to do that to you is not loving. Th this all is part of God, and you just got to see it. But first, I had to say another comment about all this Satan stuff. So there's, uh, how do you like that picture? That's, that's just great. Because I think, uh, I mean, it's amazing how many people this struck a nerve with. And they almost got mad at me over the, the Satan stuff. And can I tell you that it takes you about 15 seconds to be talking about where Satan comes from before you're in over your head and you have no idea what you're talking about. There is no biography of Satan. We do not know his history. Lots of people have theories. And I think theories have been proposed over the years. And people have taken that and run with it as if it's the truth. And we don't really know where Satan came from. We just don't know. He's interesting. But here's what I either said or meant to say last week. Okay, this is what I meant to say. For those of you who said, how dare you say Satan's not in the Old Testament? Okay, here's what I'm saying about that. The character Satan in the New Testament was very much present in the Old Testament. After all, he's there in page number three. Right? There in the garden. The devil is there in the garden, but he's not called Satan there. And in my, in my opinion, he's not called Satan in the Old Testament at all. The one that's called by name Satan is some, some character within God's counsel who's in heaven. That's not where Satan is starting in Genesis 3. He's not in heaven, and yet the Satan, and that's how the Hebrew puts it, the Satan, is all through Job and he's all through Zechariah. But in 1 Chronicles 21, it's not the Satan, it's a small s Satan. It's a Satan, like I said to you. And by the way, those of you who have gotten to start calling your spouses Satan, I want you to quit that. Okay, I've heard all about that this week. My, my wife has started calling me Satan, and, and, and you were disturbed by it. Wives, quit doing that, okay? That is not right. 
Church discipline will follow. You keep doing this another week. That's what I'm saying. The reason I just, I, I just want to say all that, to say, I'm not saying that the devil's not there in the Old Testament. He very much is active, but your English versions that will make that Job character Satan as we know it in the New Testament is probably not accurate. It's a, it's a character in God's counsel, and we don't really know much about him. He's mysterious, and I just refer you to Kelly Phipps for all the Satan stuff. Okay, just go over to his class. He answers all this for you. Um, I, do, I do think it's one of the secret things that belong to God, Deuteronomy 20, 29, 29, but, but regardless, regardless, the truth is that um, God allowed David to be um, drawn in toward a war, and I believe he used an adversary, and I believe it was a f- human king, probably. Could have been part of this council of God, or it could even have been, I guess, the devil himself. Um, but either way, God was allowing it, and that's kind of how it works, I think. And, and I'll say, So I don't want to redo ne- last, last uh, Sunday, but I want to end this book, uh, I want to end this Samuel series that we started back in 1999 with an observation about God himself, okay? Here's, here's three observations from this passage, and one is this. I believe God still disciplines his people. But this is the most confusing thing to understand. And every time I say it, people um, take it in a direction I don't mean it. So here's what I'm saying. God does not tempt, but he does discipline. He does not tempt, but he does discipline. And he says so himself. James 1, he does not tempt. Hebrews 12, God still disciplines his people. And when I say discipline... Do not hear, you are paying for your sins. Because you're not paying for your sins. Now there's a sense that there are consequences to your sins you'll have to pay for that even God's forgiveness won't atone for. I mean, that's not, even though he atones for your sin, you still have to pay for him sometimes. That's true. What I'm saying about God's discipline is don't go, well, if he's disciplining me here, then I need to draw a line between what sin I committed and what this is for. With parents, I think you need to explain what they're getting spanked for. I think you need to explain that. But when God disciplines, he's not saying I'm going to draw a line from a particular sin you've committed to this action I'm bringing into your life. That's not the discipline of God. The discipline of God is he is going to bring something into your life or allow something into your life to make you a better person. You will never, by your, sin, by, by your uh, 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 pain, by your... Um, Um, difficulties in life pay for a single sin you will never do that Jesus did that for you end of story that doesn't mean that God does not bring or allow things into your life that will cause you to have to grow up and do things maturely so let me bring in two verses here Hebrews chapter 12 Endure hardship as discipline. What hardship is that, you suppose? Which hardships of your life should you consider discipline from God? Some, all, 
financial ones, but not moral ones? I think what the Hebrew writer says is, if there's ever a hardship that comes into your life, this is an opportunity God is presenting you to demonstrate your maturity and to grow it. Because God's treating you like a son by doing that. This is discipline. God does this kind of thing. Here's an instance where James says this too. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds. Now what kind of sadistic weirdo is this? Consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. The underlined words are parallel. They mean the same thing. Here's why you should have joy when trials come. Because... This is a test of your faith so that you can develop perseverance because you cannot develop perseverance, which is a godly, Christ-like characteristic. You cannot develop it without challenge and pushback. You cannot develop perseverance without facing challenge. That's the purpose for discipline. Why would I be happy about trials? Because it's a test to show just how faithful and mature you are. That's discipline. Now here's a warning for you. I think I put the warning here. You must keep this in mind. When the Hebrew writer brought this up and when James brought it up, neither passage says anything about who caused it. Cause is not in their window of consideration. That's the first American question. That's the first thing that we ask. Who made this happen? I want to know who. And Scripture never entertains that question. Instead, it's opportunity. They direct us toward effect. You've got this trial. You've got this test. You've got this discipline. Now, what are you going to develop from this that could be developed no other way that's going to make you like Jesus. You can't develop this stuff in prosperity. You can't develop this in ease. This can only be developed in the middle of a storm. That's all. And so life, God, Satan, whatever, might bring some trial into your life that's a test for you to grow up. I'm going to go John Piper on you here real quick. Look at this, my favorite verse. You ever, if you ever have a, a wedding and say, hey, y'all highlight your favorite verse for the couple, this is going to be mine. But this is, this is Joseph at the end of, his, at the, end of uh, the experiment with his brothers. His father has just died. You remember this. His father's just died. The brothers are worried that now Joseph's going to get back at them. And here's what he says. As for you, brothers of mine, you evil, wicked beings, siblings, you meant, you meant evil against me. What does meant mean? What does meant mean? You designed it to hurt me. God meant what does meant mean? What does meant mean? You designed it. The same action that happened had two different designs for it. 
two different ideas of what, what's going to happen. They meant it for evil, and that's a, that's a trial, y'all. But God, God meant it, so did God design it too? Who did it, y'all? Who came up with a plan? I don't know either. <laughs> I don't know either. I'm all right. Because the same thing, he says, you guys meant it for evil. God meant it for good. And I sit back and I go, who then brought this on? God or evil brothers? And the answer is yes. Isn't that weird? Isn't that weird? I mean, don't, don't, don't pass over this too fast without going, woo, right? This is your Sunday night headache from Valley View Church of Christ, right? That's an amazing thing. So this is, to me, a conclu- uh, 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 an illustration of Romans 8, 28, and you know what it says, all things work together for good. Uh, you know what I think Paul means by all things? You know what I think he means by A-L-L? I think he means everything. I think what Satan tries to do, God's going to use it for good. I think what God allows, he intends for good. What your enemies do to you, the person who, man, they said that about me. They did that to me. Yep, you know what God wants? God's going to make it for good. Now, even what your friends sometimes do, even that tornado even that flood, get this one, even your sin, even your sin, God's going to use for good. Ah. Now, only, only an all-powerful, sovereign God can make a promise like that, knowing all the variables that are out there. He's got Satan working. You've got your own enemies out there. You've got your friends out there who, who can't be faithful all the time. You've got nature out there that seems to be out of control. And, and God says, all this stuff swirling around here, I can still make this promise to you. I can still make this promise to you because I can control all that in my sovereignty. That's an amazing thing, the God we serve. So when it comes to 2 Samuel 24, I believe it was a human king, but it could have been Satan, and it could have been God, and it could have been that, that mature, you know, the, the chief maternity, mature, maternity, maturity officer of, uh, of, of God. It could have been any of those people, and it doesn't really matter. It could have been, I don't care who did it, they, they brought this thing into David's life, and, and he messed it up. But God, God has designs for that. For David's maturity. Hardships are going to come to you, and these hardships are a chance for you to develop some skills that can't be developed any other way, and Christians need to view all hardship as discipline, whether it's self-inflicted or brought on by some mysterious force we do not know. But there's an even more profound thing in this chapter that we've not dealt with yet. It's found in verse 16 of 2 Samuel 24. And it's not unique to this chapter either. You've got several places in Scripture that say this. God can relent. So you remember God says you pick your poison. It could be three days of this, three months of this, or three years of this, right? And the Lord sent a pestilence, verse 15, on Israel from morning to the appointed time. There died of the people uh, from Dan to Beersheba, 70,000 men. And when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, 
16. The prayer of 17 happened at the same time. The Lord relented. Now, if you have your 1600s English Bible in front of you, otherwise known as the KJV, what does it say? Does anybody have one? God repented. God, in the middle of spanking them for their sin, he rears back, here comes another swat, and he stops. He relents. Why? Do you serve a God who can suddenly change his mind? You serve a God who can relent and do something different than what he told you he was going to do? I mean, come on. God doesn't change, does he? That's one of the trick questions. You ever have a teacher that would ask you trick questions like that? That's where Satan shows up in your life, teachers like that, right? They ask you these questions that aren't really fair. Does God change? Well, uh, his nature and his personality doesn't change, but if he is an unchanging God in his person and his nature, he absolutely must change his actions, right? So I'm going to be fair with my kids. I'm going to represent God to them and stay principled with them and I give them free will and I let them decide some things and I say to them um, if you eat your dessert if you you can eat your dessert if you'll eat your peas I would never say that because I can't stand peas either but let's say green beans if you will eat your green beans you can eat your dessert I'll let you have your dessert but if you don't eat your green beans then you can't eat dessert and your kids neither one of them will eat their green beans and so you are you are the evil wicked person who withholds dessert from them and then one of them breaks ranks in our house it would have probably been Abby she breaks ranks and she says I'm going to go ahead and eat my green beans. She eats her green beans, and I say, man, here's this wonderful dessert for you. Enjoy this. Noah's thinking I'm, going to, I'm just going to let him because how can you treat one different than the other? And he starts reaching for his, and I say, uh-uh-uh-uh, no, no, no. You didn't eat your green beans, so you're not. What? You're going to let her but not me. Well, she did what she needed to do. I'm staying, I'm staying faithful to what I told you. And he gripes and he complains and he comes up with all these reasons why Christians would never do that, that, you know, God is loving and gracious and blah, 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 blah. And I still don't let him and he complains for three hours and finally he eats his green beans and I let him have his dessert and I've changed my mind. Did I, did I change the actions toward them? Yes, I did, based on them. And in doing so, I stayed true to my unchanging character. If you have an unchanging character, you absolutely have to change some of your actual actions. We serve a God who even announces to us, I want you to change my mind. That's the God we serve. Now, I'm going to prove this to you with some verses. Ezekiel 18 is a great one, but we're going to look at Jeremiah chapter 18. Then the word of the Lord came to me. O house of Israel, this is when he went to the house of the potter. You remember that? And he saw the potter making something. And, and, and um, can I not do with you as this potter has done? I've just showed you in the potter's 
house, declares the Lord. Behold, like the, day, like the clay in the potter's house, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. I'm, I'm sovereign over you. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom, I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent. I'm announcing I'm willing to change. I'll just not do that disaster that I intended. And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or kingdom, I will build it and I will plan it and, and, and it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good I had planned. Let me ask you a question. Will God relent? Do we serve a God who will change his mind, change his actions? Yes, we do. Keep, I think there's another one. And, and now, therefore, to the, to the nation of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, here's what the Lord says. I'm shaping disaster. I'm telling you right now, I'm bringing disaster from the north, and it's coming on you, and it's going to destroy you, but it's not too late. You can stop this whole thing. Return to me. God lays out how he can be changed. Now, we have instances of this in Scripture. I'm going to show you some. Here's one. Exodus 32. God has decided, Moses, I'm backing up. I'm destroying Israel, and we're going to start over with you. Do you remember this scene? Moses, we're going to start all over with you. But Moses, get this line, very important. Moses implored, implore, Moses implored the Lord. That's hard to say real fast. Just go ahead. Implore the Lord. He implored. He prayed to the Lord his God, and he said, O Lord, why does this wrath burn hot? Remember your name and what people are going to say for you. And verse, notice toward the end of the screen when it says, Turn from your burning anger. Relent. God, I ask you to change your mind. Next screen. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and all that. And verse 14, And the Lord relented from the disaster he had spoken out loud he was going to bring on his people. What changed God's mind. Prayer. Prayer can change God's mind. Do you know what power you have? You have any clue what power you have? Exodus, or 2 Samuel 24, 16, we read this one just a moment ago. The Lord relented, and verse 16 and verse 17 happened at the same time. As he was in the middle to bring down that swat on him, he looks over at David, and David, with tears in his eyes, is praying, God, please, it's my mistake, punish me instead. And God can't complete the swing at the prayer of David and the repentance of David. He's got a broken, contrite heart. Amos chapter 7. This is what the Lord God showed me, Amos said. This is a prophet. Behold, he was forming locusts when the latter growth was just beginning to come on to sprout. And behold, it was just the latter growth, right? This was the latter growth that the kings uh, of the king's mole. I can't even read that. When they had finished eating the grass of the land, I said, Oh Lord God, please forgive our people. How can Jacob stand it? He is so small. Don't do this. And what does God do? He relents. The very next, vi the next screen shows that there was another thing he sees. 
Behold, the Lord God calling for judgment by fire, and it devoured the deep, and it was eating up the land. And he says, oh, Lord God, the nation's too small. Don't do this. Turn around. And God relented. Two times the prophet stands between God and the people and begs God not to do it, and God changes his mind on a prayer of a prophet. There's others. Psalm 106, that's another screen I've got up here. Show it if you would. Yeah, nevertheless, I looked upon their distress when he heard their cry, and he remembered the covenant and relented. And the most famous one, probably. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be destroyed, and Jonah couldn't wait. <laughs> And it never happened. Within 40 days, I'm going to destroy this people. And he goes up on a mountainside waiting to see the shock and awe of God. And it never happens. Does anybody remember why it doesn't happen? Next screen. The word, oh, sorry, go back. Yeah. Yeah, the word reached the king of Nineveh. He heard the sermon. He heard the sermon. There are some people who hear the sermon and do something about it. It's a wonderful thing to see, right? And, 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 the, and it rose from his throne, and he removed his robe, and he covered himself with sackcloth, and he sat in ashes, and he issued a proclamation published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and of his nobles, let neither man nor beast, they made the cows repent. That's something. Repentance till the cows come home. And herd or fly, all this stuff. Let everybody turn away. Why? Who knows? God may turn and relent. And guess what? They repent, God relents. When you repent, God relents. Here is the amazing thing about this. We serve a God who hasn't set everything up and established everything exactly yet. He keeps an open future in mind for what you might request or how you might repent. Repentance and prayer are two of the most powerful gifts God gives humanity. We can change the world with our prayers and with our repentance because our God is moved by those. Now, since I'm on this topic, I'm going to back up to one that's very difficult. But it's kind of like uh, Genesis 6 where you see God regretting that he made man. That's a weird thing. And you wonder, how does God do that? Well, I'm, we're going to go back to 1 Samuel chapter 14, 15, and, and you're going to ride a roller coaster. It's all on the screen so you don't have to look at your Bibles. But you know what this is. This is the chapter where Saul refuses to do exactly what God asked him to. And I want you to look at these first two verses in particular. Number one, God says to Samuel, this is verse 11. This is God speaking to Samuel. I regret that I've made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. Question, did God regret it? Okay, so this is a nod or a, a did God regret? Okay. Hit the button one more time. Samuel to Saul in verse 29. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret. He is not a man that he should have regret. Does God regret? He says he doesn't. 
Well, can God make up his mind? Does he regret or not? I regret that I made him king. Well, he's not like man that he's going to regret. In the same chapter, it's almost like it's almost like Samuel read my 21st century inquiring mind and he wanted to throw in a little thing in there just to give us our Sunday night headache to grapple with all week, right? And then, if that's not worse, look at the last verse of this chapter. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death, and Samuel grieved over Israel, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Oh my goodness. Drown me in the baptistry right now, right? Does God... Regret. That's what drove him to the flood. He regretted that he made man. But here's the interesting thing, and by Hollywood took that and made that silly Noah movie, one of the worst movies in the history of humanity, because what they took it as is that Noah realized that the what's wrong with the world is humanity, and God wants to destroy humanity and let the flowers grow on their own the stupidest interpretation of Genesis in the history of man, but leave it up to Hollywood to do that. If God regretted making man, why did he let him continue and start over again? Okay, so we need an answer to this if you're like me. And so um, God does not regret like man does. He does not regret like we do. We regret because we couldn't see what was going to happen. And now that we can, we'd like to go back and redo it. That's not God's regret. God knew what was going to happen. He brought his purpose around anyway, and he knew what was going to happen. So what is his regret then? God is quite capable of looking back at an event and what it would and did lead to that fulfilled his purpose and still lament the consequences of that purpose being fulfilled. He can look back at something and know it couldn't have been any other way. I couldn't have done it any other way, but I sure regret that that had to happen. I hate that. It's an emotional thing for God, right? Every parent knows this, right? Your kid does something wrong, and you, you have to punish her or him. Maybe you take away something that she really values, at least for a time, or maybe you spank him. Your child receives that discipline and at that moment resents it, absolutely resents it, and either runs away from home for a day or maybe, maybe is just angry and bitter and resentful at you for the next eight hours. Does that affect you? Does it bother you that your kid ran away? Does it bother you that your daughter has a hard feeling about you and is angry and looks at you with tears and bitterness in her eyes? And you say, well, you couldn't have done anything different. I agree. As a parent, you need to punish. As a parent, you need to discipline them. As a parent, you need to respond. But that doesn't mean you don't care what that does to them. You look at that and you say, I hate this. There's nothing I could have done different. Given what you did, I had to respond this way. But even though I did, it breaks my heart what our relationship is right now. It breaks my heart heart this way God can regret without thinking he would do it different if he could do it again I think of it like this there's God's purpose is this broad stripe 
And anything within that purpose, he would allow. And so he gives you, your prayer can make him do any number of things in this area right here. Anything in there. It, it doesn't really matter because it will still fill his purpose. It will still fulfill his purpose. Anything within this. And so like Hezekiah, when, when God says, you're, get your house in order, you're going to die. And Hezekiah prays for 15 more years. God says, you know what? I... I actually, my purpose can be fulfilled, and I can grant that. It's at the upper level. It's at the boundary of this. But I can, I, can, I can say yes to this and still do my purpose. If you ask him something that allows him to still fulfill his purpose, and it's within this, he'll let you do it. He'll, he'll say yes to you. But if you ask him to do something to make him change his purpose, to make, you, to, to make him act against his purpose, he will say no. And what that does to you in certain circumstances might hurt. And God's not unmoved about that. Now for some people you say, well, big deal. He didn't answer my prayer, what do I care? This past week I learned what a difference that makes. Walk into a funeral home on Wednesday... A casket that's about this wide with a 10-day-old baby girl in it. Open casket. The most beautiful, it looked, she looked like a baby doll. It messed me up. But I walk into that um, funeral home and on the back row, let me brag about Valley View for a minute, it's Rhonda Reed and Dana Lands. This couple who was here this morning buried their 10-day-old last Wednesday. They have a, a son turning three in August who when he was born, there's all sorts of problems. He was in the NICU here at St. Bernard's and Dana and Rhonda had a huge role in sustaining him for those 60 days and fell in love with his family, stay in contact so that when the troubles come with this girl, genetic and heart problems come with this girl, they, they go to UAMS, but they still, they still, they contact Rhonda and they still contact Dana. And, and for them to make that trip to the funeral home on a very difficult day, I have to applaud these two ladies. That's an amazing thing. And it was the hardest experience I've ever seen. Somebody just brag about them for a minute. But trying to come up with words to say at a funeral like that, and I, I talk to some people who've been in this situ some situation similar to this, and I, I just keep saying, what do you need to say? Why, why do we think that words are going to work? I don't know. But when you go to funerals, we want somebody to speak something to this. We want to say something. I don't know why the words matter, but they matter. I want to find the right words, and, and I, I have to grapple with God on this. I don't give God a pass on this deal. I don't see any reason why God would say no to the healing and sparing of of the life of a 10-day-old girl, I do not understand that, and no category makes me understand that. I don't, th I, 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 God didn't cause it, but can I tell you, I think God could have intervened, and he didn't. And multitude of people petitioned him to. But for some reason, God's purpose could not include rescue. 
Not for this girl, not for this family. And that's hard for me to grasp and to say anything redemptive about that when I'm believing that in my head. His purposes could not be achieved by healing. It's the same thing that Jesus faced in the garden. God could not say to Jesus, I will give you another way because there was no other way in God's purpose. That's exactly why he told him no. But that's not all I believe about God. That's not the final word. So listen carefully. Do I believe that God was there and that he could have done something and he didn't in order to fulfill his purpose? Yes, I believe that. But I believe God regretted it. I believe he saw the sorrow and the pain it generated and he absolutely had a broken heart. And something about that allows me to trust him even in my ignorance. Our God is complex. He has these emotions and sometimes he says no. But, but when he does and he sees the hurt that results from him not acting in line with our desire, but for his purpose, it breaks his heart. He's not stone-faced. It's not that he doesn't care. We serve a God committed to his purpose, and he alone knows that purpose. And he carries it out with tears streaming down his face. And maybe for some of you that makes no difference at all. But to me, I can serve a God like that. I can serve a God like that. In my confusion, this chapter wore me out, and so did the Samuel books. So remember, next Sunday is Sunday Night Share. You're going to have a light conversation, and you're going to have some food, and you're going to get together, and you will not have a headache next Sunday night. But let me wrap up with this. From this chapter, there's so many things we learn about God, and He is so complex, and He is so mysterious. I didn't answer anything. None of these things are final answers for anything. These are grappling with what evidence that we have. But what is an honor for us is we get to study him. And we get to serve him because he has given to us his revelation. Inviting us to grapple with these things. And my questions won't all be answered. And my, and my ponderings won't all be explained it but it's enough just to see him i believe when i get to heaven one day i'm going to go up to him with tears and i believe what i'll see is tears in him too finally home and all the questions are gone and we're where we're supposed to be until then, we have to live with some mystery. But for me, it's enough. He cares enough to discipline me. He wants me to be like Jesus. He gives me the incredible dignity and grace of being able to understand how to change things sometimes, that he relents. And then, and then I know he laments with us when he can't answer things the way we want to and it hurts us, he is there lamenting and regretting with us, but he will not compromise his purpose. 
That's why he's God. And we are servants who trust and submit even when we don't understand. I can serve a God like that. Can you? If there's anyone who needs to respond this evening, this is the time uh, to make your response as we stand and as we sing.